Um, really excited for it. Um, Hebrews is one of my favorite New Testament books. And I remember being a high school pastor and uh, teaching through the New Testament. And it came to be Hebrews time. And I was really intimidated by this book. Um, didn't know a ton about it. And uh, I just found, though, that as I studied and was teaching it, I just really fell in love with the book. Um, actually, my last Sunday in Corvallis, um, I taught the main, we called it the big service, and um, I did a, a scan through the book of Hebrews in one hour. We, we went through all 13 chapters and, uh, and just captured the theme of Jesus is better than anything. And, um, and then uh, for the last, I think, two or three years, uh, the School of Ministry in Corvallis uh, has had me come over and teach the book of Hebrews. And I typically do that in um, six hours, uh, do the whole book and give a, a, an overview of it. So um, we're, we're, our goal is 13 weeks, uh, a week a chapter. And uh, if all else fails, I can do it in six hours and we'll be good to go. So <laughs> maybe not. I don't know. That might be horrible. But, um, but looking forward to uh, reading and, and studying the book of Hebrews with you all. And uh, looking at Jesus being better than anything that the world can throw at us. And uh, in context, anything that the Jews would look to for um, comfort or strength, uh, the, the author says, hey, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus above anything else. Don't go back to anything else in this world. And, um, and also glad that we recently in the church had uh, fasted for seven days and we went through the Pentateuch, which will give us a, a real uh, understanding of a lot that is talked about in these 13 chapters. So um, let's dig in, and we'll pray before we do. Lord God, thank you for this time of worship and just singing to you with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts to you, Lord. Uh, as we get into a new book, um, we're just excited for what you would want to speak to us, Lord. Um, and, and while we will get great facts and great knowledge and things like that, Lord, that's not why we're here. Um, Lord, we're here to have you transform us to be like Jesus. Lord, that you would show us our sin, show us where we are still uh, turning to idols, Lord, and that we would cast those things down before your awesome throne and let you reign uh, just in power as Lord and as Savior in our life. Um, Lord, as there's a lot to cover, uh, we pray your grace in this, Lord, that you give me wisdom on what to skip over and what to uh, hammer down. And Lord, that it would be your spirit that does that, that your spirit would press these things into our heart, Lord, and change us as a congregation in Prineville, 2013, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you can flip in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to do a quick introduction before we actually dig into the text. Uh, at the time Hebrews was written, many Jewish believers, uh, Messianic Jews, who'd stepped out of the religious machine of Judaism into Christianity, they'd begun to go back into Judaism in order to escape persecution by their own countrymen. Now, at the time this book was written, imagine... The temple was still standing. Sacrifices were still being offered. Feast days were still being observed. Judaism was at its zenith. But Jewish families and friends were scoffing out loud at crazy Christians, 
wondering why anyone would leave behind the security blanket of ancient traditions and institutions to follow a no-name preacher from Galilee. Pressure was being applied to Messianic Jews. Jewish mamas were disappointed in their children for rocking the family boat. Proud Jewish papas were threatened to write their children out of the will if they didn't renounce their allegiance to this Jesus guy. New believers were being excommunicated from synagogues and banished by their families. Land and property was being confiscated. If you name the name of Christ, the heat was essentially on for anyone who was formerly Jewish, now Christian. There were challenges to these new Christians. Did all that they'd been raised with in Judaism mean nothing? Did the sacrifices mean nothing? Did the smoke rising from the temple uh, mean nothing? Did the law count for naught? Did Moses mean nothing? We want to look at a few uh, main points, really. We look at the author real quick. Who was this guy? Uh, unmistakable evidence clearly uh, shows us that Hebrews was existent uh, as a book early on in, uh, in uh, Christianity. Hebrews was widely used by church leaders, including Clement of Rome back in 95 AD, Irenaeus, Alexandra, Tertullian, Eusebius. Uh, no one really knows, though, since then, who wrote the book of Hebrews, or where it was written, or the date it was written, or who its original readers were specifically. And because nobody knew who wrote it, its recognition as canonical, uh, which means recognized as authoritative as actual scripture, was delayed, even though Clement of Rome highly supported it. It wasn't until the 4th century that it was generally recognized as authoritative scripture when the testimonies of Jerome and Augustine settled the issue. In the Eastern Church, there was no issue of canonical acceptance because it was regarded as one of the 14 epistles of Paul in the early church. But during the Reformation, the issue of its authority was questioned again. And then as people read it, they recognized it had spiritual depth, it had a quality that bore witness to its inspiration despite its anonymous authorship. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 verses 18 through 24 tells us that the author was not anonymous to the original readers. They all knew who uh, wrote it. But for some reason, the church is divided over the identity of the author. There's a few different names that have been popped up as the author of Hebrews, including Paul, Apollos, Peter, Philip, Silvanus, Bar Barnabas, or Barbarnabas, Luke, Silas, Clement of Rome, Ariston, Titus, and Zenus. Who do you think? Yeah, numerous names have been suggested, but the most persuasive arguments uh, from internal evidence in the scripture and external evidence from history and such sets forth uh, a few key candidates, Barnabas, Luke, Apollos, and Paul. And uh, most debate centers around Paul, but uh, we're going to quickly look at all four possibilities. Um, a lot of people thought Paul wrote it in the early church. If you've got a King James Version of the Bible, what does the headline say? It says, the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Just kind of tells it like it is, right? Uh, some think Barnabas uh, external, externally. And uh, around the 4th century, a lot of people thought it was Barnabas. But an interesting thing is that uh, as Tertullius suggested it, it being Barnabas, that was never accepted in Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, 
which is where he was from, or Tertullian's country, uh, Africa. Uh, that's a continent, I know, but in Africa where he was at. Uh, or anywhere uh, within the church. No one really actually followed suit. A lot of the language in it made people think that it might have been Luke. Uh, he hung out a lot with Paul, and so he would naturally sound like Paul in his writings, except that he, he says things in it as if he was Jewish, and we all know that Luke was a Gentile. There's some external evidence the point to it being uh, Apollos. Martin Luther was uh, a big uh, proponent of that, and yet even uh, Alexandria and Egypt uh, never actually got behind that movement. Um, Clement of Rome was one author. Some people thought uh, Paul, because of the aspects of language and style and the theology of Hebrews, uh, it's really similar to a lot of Paul's epistles. Um, whoever this author is knew Timothy well. We know Timothy was a disciple of Paul's. Um, Hebrews appears, as one man put it, to not have been written by Paul, though, but the writer definitely has Pauline influence. Uh, Wearsby writes, those who would argue the style and vocabulary are not typical of Paul must bear in mind that writers are free to adapt their style and vocabulary to their readers and topics. Um, Origen said in the third century that Hebrews, about Hebrews' authorship, God alone knows certainly. Uh, it's important to note that the authorship question of Hebrews does not detract from its authenticity or its inspired authority. Uh, ultimately, uh, I grew up with a show on PBS that was called Ghost Rider, and this ghost would show up and put things on the wall. Ultimately, it was the Ghost Rider. It was the Holy Spirit. That, that might be heresy. I don't know. But um, it was the Holy Ghost writing it, inspiring holy men of God, and they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, to write the words that we have on the page today. Uh, Hebrews was written to people who most probably lived in Rome. They'd come to faith through the eyewitness testimony of Jesus Christ in chapter 2, verse 3. They were not new believers. In fact, they had successfully endured hardship for their faith. In chapter 10, verse 32, we see that. Uh, and yet, even though they were um, seasoned, they were immature in the faith. They weren't new believers but in Hebrews chapters 5 and 6, they're corrected for immaturity and being dull of hearing in chapter 5. Uh, Wearsby says, we should approach Hebrews as a letter written to believers who were in danger of lapsing into a carnal state of spiritual immaturity because of their wrong attitudes toward the word of God. Hebrews was written between 64 and 60 AD, most believe. The purpose of the book of Hebrews was in response to the Jewish Christian, uh, Christian's situation and need. And so the author writes a word of exhortation, he calls it in 1322. The purpose of the book of Hebrews is to exhort Jewish Christians to continue persevering forward in maturity in the Christian faith. And he's warning them, the author is warning them of the pending dangers of abandoning their faith. The purpose that the author has here throughout the letter is shown by usage of key words and phrases such as be diligent, chapter 4, verse 11. Be mature, chapter 5, verse 14. A key word of persevering and endurance. Uh, a warning against drifting away and departing and even falling away. Uh, this book is, is, has about five major warning scriptures 
uh, for these Christians not to depart from the faith. The author's purpose is explicitly recorded in these different warning passages. Now, the theme of the book of Hebrews, and I love it, it's that Jesus is better. Jesus is better, or the supremacy of Christ. The word better, describing the dominance of Christ, is used 12 times in these 13 chapters. Christ is presented better in every aspect you can think of. The author of Hebrews presses the superiority of Christ over the traditions and systems of Judaism. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the angels. They worship Jesus. Jesus is better than Moses. He created Moses. Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices as his sacrifice was made once for all. Jesus has a better covenant to his children than the law of Moses did for the Jews. And so... Jesus is better. He's superior to everything that uh, comprises and compromise. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Judaism and its religious system and history. But really, as my good friend and professor Adam Poole says, the main thrust of the letter, and he defends it to the core, is that we are emphatically told who is to brew the coffee in the morning. Thank you. Okay. Only corny joke of the night, I promise. Hebrews. Okay. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Something beautiful about the book is that it starts out like a lecture and it ends like a letter. See if you notice that as we go through, and maybe you'll read through the book of Hebrews on your own time. Tonight's theme, as we look at chapter one, is the theme Jesus is better than the prophets and the angels. All right? Jesus is better than the prophets. We see that in chapter one, verse one through three. In the first section of Hebrews, the author opens up his letter by demonstrating that Christ is better and superior than the prophets. God spoke through the prophets in the past, but his final word is revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. Christ is shown in these three verses to be superior to the prophets and that he is a greater source. He's the greater substance. In contrast to the prophet, Christ is shown superior in his position, his power, his person, his providence, his provision, and his place. All of that is seen in these first three verses. So let's look at it. Verse one. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Already, this doesn't sound like one of Paul's letters. How do Paul's letters typically start out? You guys know it. I, I, Paul, obviously, he would start that way. Greetings, um, grace, and mercy, and peace in the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, those, that's the typical, you know, although a couple words are switched up in a different epistle, that's it. Grace, and mercy, and peace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This epistle starts out in a different way than Paul typically would do it, but in a great way. God. Do you like that word? Just a great beginner? I mean, we could be done already tonight just reading the first verse. God at various times in his various ways has spoken in past by the Father, uh, to the fathers by the prophets. When you look back in Numbers chapter 12, and we read it recently as a church, you remember when Moses, uh, his sister and brother, Miriam and Aaron, rebelled against him and just had a, a bitter streak towards his leadership uh, call on his life. The Lord calls them all before him, and he says, if there's a prophet among you, 
I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not the case with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings, and he sees the form of the Lord. So Moses, as a prophet, had one of the most incredible prophetic uh, revelation experiences that any of the prophets did, and that the Lord brought it clearly to him. Like a man speaks to his friend face to face. You know, in the book of Hebrews, 61 times the letter mentions God speaking. In the scriptures, God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden. He spoke to Noah. He gave them instru- him instructions for the ark. He spoke through a donkey to Balaam. It's remarkable that God speaks. Don't you agree? Isn't it beautiful that God loves us, his creation enough to reveal himself to us, let alone, you know, uh, or in a greater scale, to reveal his plan of salvation and adoption and inheritance and glory to us. It's remarkable that God speaks and that he spoke from the, to the prophets and from the prophets in the past. But verse 2 says he has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So we want to look at this. So uh, before he spoke in times past through the prophets. In these last days, the author says, he's spoken to us by his son. These last days, or in the last of these days, the author writes, spoken to us literally in his son. God has finally said all that he has to say in regards to revelation about himself through his son. There's no need for more revelation. The last thing that he said to us in son was in what book? The book of Revelation. He reveals himself to us. That's what revelation is about. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that was the last um, canonical book written uh, by the Apostle John. Nobody needs to add to this revelation of Jesus. It is complete. And so as exciting and awesome and even powerful that the message from the prophets was, a culmination of the revelation of God in human history was when God became flesh, dwelt among men, and taught us and spoke to us with his very lips. My kids and I were reading the book of uh, Mark today, chapter 4. And it was cool. I had Mark on my computer. And then on another screen that I've got, I was bringing up pictures, you know, from Google Images on Jesus talking about the sower and the seed. But as we were reading, we read this together. That Jesus began to teach by the sea and great multitudes gathered to him so that he had to sit into, get into a boat and sit in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea, and then he taught them by parables. Now, how many times have we read that? A lot. But have we really thought about it? Oh, man, in times past, God spoke through prophets, but in these last days, God in the flesh, walking on this earth, this soil, hung out in a boat on the sea in a a, a Lord-made amphitheater and preached the gospel of the kingdom in parables. Is that not glorious? Is that not awesome that God loves us enough to reveal himself to us? He's appointed this preacher, this one who came and spoke to us as heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. We're going to be doing this a lot in this book, but we are going to consider Jesus in that he is the greater substance of the prophets. In his position, 
verse 2 tells us. In his power, verse 2 tells us. In his person, verse 3 tells us. In his providence, verse 3 tells us. In his provision, in his place. He's of greater substance than any prophet has ever been. The Son is the heir of all things, we see. The Son made the world. He is God. He's the Son. He's the heir of all things, even worldly things, because he became a man. And he's the creator of the world, or worlds, as your translation probably says. The word, the word worlds there is the word eons. We've used that before, haven't we? Just in regular sentences. Eons. I haven't seen you in eons. And I like that that word is used here. It speaks of a space and time or an age. So not only did God, did Jesus Christ create the world or the worlds, he created the eons. All time, all space. Because of him, time rolled out. The book of Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 says that this creator was the lamb that had been slain from the foundation of the world. It was the lamb that was slain that made the eons roll out. Continuing with the idea of the sun making the world, we read verse 3 of chapter 1. Who, being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. If, you're, if you have a pen with you, you might underline this, that Jesus, this is who we're talking about here, is in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, right? Brightness of his glory. He's the express image of the person of God. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory because he is God. Jesus is the, New King James Version, I like this. He is the express image. I like that. Express image of his person. The word express means precise. Jesus is the precise image of the person of God. He is God in the flesh. Jesus is the impression of God. And I remember growing up, probably was the early 90s, mid 90s, my grandpa got a, a gift. And this gift was a, a box with a clear glass plate on top. And underneath that glass plate were like a thousand little nail type things. And you guys have probably seen these, you know. And as you flipped it, the nails would fall down this way. And when you flipped it, the nails would fall this way, standing up on edge. And you could push your hand into the nails and you'd have the image of your hand. And you could open your mouth up and shove these, not real nails, you know, stabbing yourself in the face. But you could, you know, and pull it away. You know, nowadays we got obviously copy machines and, and perfect things that will scan us. And, and show the express image of what was copied. And uh, here we have God in high def uh, coming as Jesus Christ. Uh, so Jesus is God. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, a great proof of this. He is the image of the invisible God. So when you are sharing with a Mormon or you are sharing with a Jehovah's Witness or you're sharing with anyone or you're discipling a fellow Christian, you can go to Hebrews chapter 1. It's a key power passage in, in showing and teaching the deity of Christ as well as Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 17. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn or first ranked over all creation. Look at this, verse 16. For by him... 
all things that were created that are in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. This is all Jesus. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So, Jesus is God. Jesus is the image, the replica, the copy of God. I like, I like this last verse in verse 17, in him all things consist. It means that Jesus is holding all things together by his word. He holds it together. And, and interesting, I'm no scientist, but um, many preachers I listen to um, say that, that scientists are still marveling at the atom and what holds it together in, in, in you know, in ceasing uh, or stopping you know an atomic explosion they're still marveling and they're still nervous about it and uh and, and and the scriptures tell us it's jesus that's holding things together and some believe that when the earth melts with a fervent heat as peter tells us and the lord creates the new heaven and the new earth that 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 would be the lord just letting it go and just letting it c- combust uh some some positions are but but jesus the creator isn't that awesome? He's the creator. He's holding all things together. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that Christ is the image of God. John 1, 1, you know it, you love it. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. These are all power passages on showing the deity of Christ. Whip them out when the Jehovah's Witnesses come by. Because they'll, that's the challenge point right there is the deity of Jesus. In fact, Every cult, it all comes down to who do you say that Jesus is? And even within the church today, there are major popular churches that some of us know of that there's debate on whether the lead pastor believes that Jesus was God when he walked the earth or that he gave up all of his deity and he just walked as a man on the earth. Okay, so this, this, the, the church fathers in the early, early, early on, they would say, hey, scriptures say that's heresy. So we always test things by who do people say that Jesus is, Jesus was, Jesus will be. Because John says that Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. This is all Jesus. And then you jump down to verse 14. It says, that word the word who's God, the word that was beginning, the word that created, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory while he walked among us. What glory? Just a man's glory? No, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in another 14 chapters in John, John 14, 9, John, by the way, the theme of John is the deity of Christ. So you can just go to John, and that's the debate in the book. The Pharisees, they're all testing Jesus, and he's going to lay down the hammer that he is God in the flesh. And in John 14, 9, Jesus says uh, to Philip, Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, I've been with you so long, and yet you've not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Are you guys getting it? Jesus is God. All right? Jesus isn't God the Father, nor is God the Father Jesus, nor is Jesus the Holy Spirit, nor, that's not, that's modalism, all right? We're talking about three distinct persons unified in one Godhead, all right? Trinity, 
It's on our doctrine series that we did, what, four years ago, three years ago now? Uh, listen to that teaching online. So, he's the express image, all right? He created the world. And it says there in verse uh, two, he had by himself purged, or verse three, I'm sorry. Uh, he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I love this. So God, the creator, became flesh and purged our sins by himself. The word purged means to purify or to clean. It's Jesus who cleanses us and purifies us. He washes them away. It's Isaiah the prophet that says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, I will wash them as white as snow. He's the one who cleanses us just as if we've never sinned before. He purifies, Hebrews will tell us in, in a few chapters, the conscience from dead works that we might serve the living God. Revelation says that he loves us and washed us from our sins. And what cleans, cleaning agent? His own blood. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 lists a whole bunch of sins that just show us the bondage of corruption and the depravity of man. Every sin that you can think of, you name it, it's there. And Paul says, and such were some of you. You were sinners just like this, but you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we are washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus and in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the verse continues, and by the spirit of our God. Titus has a similar passage where he lists off all of these sins and he says that we're saved from that, not by works of righteousness that we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration. You could phrase it this way, through the washing of being born again. When you're born again, when you're saved, when you're regenerated, you're washed, you're justified. And the father sees you through the son just as if you'd never sinned. And once the son had cleansed us with his blood on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The king, the highest one, had a, had a seat next to him in heaven, reserved for the son. Should he be victorious? And you read at the end of the book of Acts that he ascended into heaven. And the welcome party that he received when he ascended into heaven, the fact that he wasn't spit back out or cast back out shows that his sacrifice, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection were all pleasing and according to plan to the Father, and he was received into heaven in a homecoming that the prophets write of that was just spectacular. He sat down when he got there at the right hand of the majesty. Later on, next week in chapter 2, uh, throughout the book of Hebrews, we're going to see what Jesus is doing now. Uh, this is your life now for Jesus, now that he's ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of the majesty on high. One man wrote, what a savor of rest as we see Jesus having paid for the sins of the world, ascending on high and sitting down at the right hand of the majesty. So Jesus is better than the prophets. And now we see Jesus is superior or better than the angels. Now this is part one, okay? Next week in chapter two, we're gonna see Jesus is better than the angels part two. But part one says Jesus is better than the angels because he is God, all right? 
This week, it's because he's God that he's better than the angels. Angels are a huge subject in the Bible. So are the prophets. The Jews had a bent towards sin and worshiping the prophets uh, or killing the prophets. They were very fickle. Uh, in fact, uh, is it Jude that writes about the, um, the battle that happened between Michael the archangel and Satan about the body of Moses? Uh, that after Moses died on the mount, uh, there was a fight over it. And, and most believe the reason was if, if the body of Moses wasn't removed, it would become a source of idol worship. The people would have gone back and worshipped that place. They, they loved it so much that, that there was a spiritual battle that took place to get that body out of there. Satan wanted to use it uh, as, uh, as fodder, and, and the Lord knew we've got to remove it. So interesting little ideas there, just ideas. But uh, some believe that's what's going on in the book of Jude. Uh, prophets, a, a source that could have been idolatry. Same with um, angels. Angels so quickly could, could be worshipped by the Jews uh, rather than worshipping the creator of the angels, God himself. There's 108 references of angels in the Old Testament, 165 references in the New Testament. You've got a lot of cool angels. You've got Michael and Gabriel. You've got cherubim and all different sorts of eyes covering their body and a bunch of different numbers of wings that would cause them to fly and how they would worship you've got seraphim they camp around those who fear god herod was smitten by an angel in acts chapter 12 and then he was devoured by worms elijah awakened his servant who was terrified because the enemy was upon the city and elijah was not troubled and prayed that the servant's eyes would be opened his eyes were open and the servant saw thousands of fiery chariots around uh, with angels encamped around the city. So uh, angels, a great study, right? Uh, a fun study. John Patton in church history was a missionary, one of my favorite missionaries to the cannibalistic islands of New Hebrides outside of Australia. And uh, amazing story. I don't have time to get into it now. But one night as he miraculously made it as long as he did on this island, so many people, missionaries getting killed and eaten in front of boats that would drop off missionaries and stuff. One night, Hostile natives surrounded John Patton's mission station, uh, intent on burning out the Pattons, killing them, and eating them. Patton and his wife prayed during the terror-filled night that God would deliver them. When daylight came, they were amazed to see the attackers were gone. A year later, the chief of the tribe was converted to Christ. Remembering what had happened, Patton asked the chief what had kept him from burning down the house and killing them. The chief replied in surprise, well, who were all those men who were with you there? Patton knew no men were present, but the chief said he was afraid to attack because there were hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords circling the mission station. Lazarus died and was led to Abraham's bosom by angels in Luke 16. To the Hebrew people, angels had a special place. Since angels lived in God's presence and since they helped convey the law to Moses, angels were considered by some to be mediators between God and man. We know the New Testament says there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. The Mormons will tell you that Jesus is just another angel, the brother of Lucifer, and God the Father asked for a plan on how to redeem mankind, and so these two brothers battled it out in some sort of a debate. Jesus beat out Lucifer. Lucifer fell with all the people. All the angels that went down were black people, and they all populated the earth, and anyone that's black now is part of Lucifer's band that fell and, and lost the lost the vote. Ask a Mormon. Most of them don't know, but it's true. All right. Um, the Jehovah's Witnesses tell us that uh, Jesus is Michael the archangel. So Jesus is nothing but 
an angel. And while Jesus is referred to as an angel in the scriptures and in the Christophanies in the Old Testament, it, it speaks of messenger is really the key. It can be translated different ways there. Uh, Hebrews uh, 1 is key, absolute key to our defense of Jesus's deity as well as his supremacy over the angels. He created the angels. He himself is not a created angel. And so verse 4, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Get in the habit as we study this book to just circle all of the betters, more than, much better than, more excellent, all of those things, all right? It's the theme. It's the key here. I, I love this verse. The son is so much better than the angels. Jesus is Michael the archangel, and Jesus is a, hey, Jesus is so much better, so much better, not even comparable. J.B. Phillips' translation, I like it. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. He has an inheritance, an inheritance of a son, not an inheritance of an angel. There is none. He is so much better than the angels. In fact, Jesus, by inheritance, has received a much better name than the angels. Although the name of Jesus itself is supreme and special, Philippians 2.8 tells us this, that God, uh, through Jesus' obedience and his walk of humility and his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection, God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of, what is it? Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those of the earth, and those under the earth. So the name Jesus is a great name. I think it, our culture, man, we don't name anybody Jesus. You know, we got Jesus, our buddy, and we're like, how come you get to name, you know, what's the deal? All right, anyone pregnant in here? I dare you. Okay, Isaiah 9, a prophecy about Jesus coming, says his name you guys know it, unto us a, a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder, his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and just this great prophecy about Jesus. Mary speaks, or God, the angel speaks to Mary and says, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. That's an angel saying that. He's going to be one of us, and he's going to come. No, he's different than us. He'll be great, and his name will be called Son of the Highest. Now, all of these names are great, but the name that is most excellent, so awesome, here in chapter 1, check out this name in verse 5. To which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? That name is awesome. That is a most excellent name name as bill and ted would say i guess most excellent okay you are my son okay two cheesy jokes now we're done you are my son today i've begotten you and again i will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son the son exalted above the angels to which of the angels has ever been called my son do you know in scripture anywhere an angel you are my son or any angel that called God my father. A quote from Psalm 2 is what we're reading here. And it's quoted later on in the book of Acts in reference to Jesus. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses will take this verse and say, You are my son, today I've begotten. You see, he was begotten. 
See, he was conceived at one point. But that's not the, what, the, what the scripture is speaking of there. What the scripture is speaking of, and Paul preaches on it in Acts chapter 13, is the resurrection. That's the begotten. It's the resurrection from the dead. And in Paul's sermon, he, he comes to the conclusion, and he says, in that he has raised up Jesus. This is 13.33 of Acts 13.33. Acts 13, He's raised up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. So what's the begotten part all about? Jesus being finally born, and it's the first time he ever did anything and ever saw anything. He was created right there in Mary's womb. No, that's not what happened. It's speaking of the resurrection here. Uh, you are my son, today I've begotten you out of the earth. And so uh, P, uh, Paul goes on more to preach on that and to show that that's the context is the resurrection. When Christ ascended, he was the first fruits begotten from the dead and took flesh back to heaven to fellowship with God for the first time since we messed up in heaven. Before, everybody went to Abraham's bosom. Everybody went to Abraham's bosom until Jesus rose from the dead and led captivity captive. <clears throat> Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said in the, in the 1800s, Christ has a fourfold right to the title Son of God. Number one, by generation as begotten of God. Number two, and I was taught in speech class, never do this with your fingers, but I'm going to do it today so that you get it. Number one, I did have a speech class at high school, okay. Um, by, ge by generation, he was begotten of God, so he has a right to be called the Son of God. Number two, by commission, he was sent by God. Three, by resurrection as the first begotten of the dead. And number four, by actual possession as heir of all. Quoting Bishop Pearson, he's greater than the angels in his rank, verses 6 and 7. The angels worship him. We read verse 6, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. When he brings the first ranked, when he brings this heir, is what it's speaking of, into the world. We read it in the Gospel of Luke. What did the angels do when the first ranked came into the world? They worshipped him. They worshipped the first ranked, the heir of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Speaking of us, for whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, that his son might be the firstborn among many brethren. As the son was risen from the dead and, and obtained that inheritance and that ranking, uh, and solidified it and proved it, so is everyone who believes in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus is not just another angel. In fact, all of the angels worship, have worshipped, and will worship Jesus Christ. Why worship an angel? The Jews so quickly would worship an angel and make a good thing a god, make it an idol. There was a preacher back when I was moving over here. His name was Todd Bentley from uh, Florida. And uh, a lot of his stuff is, is heretical in what he teaches. And I remember watching an episode where he would call down angels. And rather than focusing on Jesus and giving glory to Jesus, they called down angels, 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 angels. And, uh, loud and louder and louder and louder. And angels and angels in the focus became angel worship. As I watched it, we're going to see here in Revelation Chapter 19, verse 10, that the Apostle John 
had that same bent in that same, and I probably, you know, we would have that bent when we see a glorious angel, right? To fall down at his feet and worship. But the angel said to John, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. No doubt this angel remembered another angel who desired to be worshipped. His name was Lucifer. And he was cast out of angel like a, out of heaven like a star fallen with a third of the angels. In Revelation 22, only however, three chapters later. Okay, math, not so bueno. Uh, three chapters later, John does the same thing again. He sees the, the, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And he falls down at the angel's uh, feet to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, again, same wording, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Worship God. The angels serve God. And of the angels, he says in verse 7, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? His angels are spirits. His angels are ministers, servants. They're flames of fire. Contrast that with the sun in verses 8 through 9. To the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your uh, companions. Does anybody notice anything truly spectacular about this verse set? God calls the Son God. God the Father calls the Son God. In verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Verse 9, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. This verse taken from Psalm 45, verses 6 through 7, is paramount and pillar in the doctrines of the deity of Christ. I remember in school and ministry, we had this mock debate or this witness session, and Chris Cross pretended to be a Jehovah's Witness. And he was telling us that Jesus was uh, an angel and this and that. And, and it was my turn to like give a defense for Christ being God. And I was like, oh, God, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know. And I remember my, my other pastor, Mark Troncalli, going, Hebrews 1.8, Hebrews 1.8. And I go, oh, Hebrews 1.8, you know. And to this day, my mind defaults and goes to Hebrews 1.8. I hope yours does too to save you embarrassment. He's greater than the angels in his dominion, verses 8 and 9. He is royal. He is divine. He is eternal. He is ruler. He is righteous. He is triumphant. We see all of that in two verses. Who is God calling God here? The Son. Who is God giving a ruling staff of righteousness and a kingdom? The Son. Who has loved righteousness and hated lawlessness? The Son. Who has been anointed with the oil of gladness more than anyone else? Jesus. Here God calls his son God. He's greater than the angels in that he's creator. Another uh, psalm quoted here. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. Quoted from Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Who is the Lord calling Lord here in verse 10 and attributing the creation of the heaven and the earth in this psalm? 
Who will fold up the heavens and the earth and change them, but he himself will remain and not fail? It's the Son. It's Jesus. He's a creator. He's superior in his creation. In verse 10, he's the creator. The angels are created beings. He's superior in his eternality, verse 11. Creation will perish. Christ will not perish. He will persist. He's greater than the angels in his immutability. He won't even change. Creation will all be changed, we'll see in verse 12. Christ will remain unchanged. He's greater than the angels in his exaltation, verses 13 and 14. He has a seat of exaltation, a throne. There's sovereignty in his exaltation. To which of the angels, verse 13, has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Quoted from Psalm 110.1. Who is seated at the right hand of the Father? It's Jesus. This prophecy is about Jesus. The scripture in its entire verse, we don't see it in in, uh, the New King James Version. The scripture in Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. I love that. I like God calling Jesus God. I like the Lord saying to my Lord. It shows the Trinity. It shows two people of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son. Jesus loved this verse. In Matthew 22, 41 through 45, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Matthew twenty-two forty-one. own it, all right? Get these scriptures down to defend the deity of Christ. So it separates a cult from truth. The angels, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister? And we can have the worship team come on up. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who inherit salvation? The angels are servants of Jesus' exaltation. Angels are awesome, don't get me wrong. I would be so quick to have a sermon where we just go, angels, 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 had I not known that there's one preeminent above the angels, superior to the angels, better than the angels. We gotta be careful lest we make angels a god. They're not God, nor are they equal to the Son of God. While the Son of God reigns in righteousness, angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who inherit salvation. The Psalms speak of that. They do his word. They do his pleasure. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is talking about receive these little kids. And he says, you better watch out. You don't be the one to stumble these little kids. And he says that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. We inherit salvation, and God has blessed us with ministers in the spiritual realm, but I pray we would have trust and faith. They're there. God has used them and created them to be powerful and to help us and to assist us. You read the book of Acts, the angels are present in the book of Acts, and they are so helpful. Read the account of Peter escaping from Herod's sword in the middle of the night and being led out of the prison by an angel, and he says, now I know the angel of the Lord has helped me. That's okay. I know it glorifies God. I know that God has done this, but I'm not going to worship the angel. I'm going to worship the one who created the angel. 
Jesus is the son of God. Angels are servants. Jesus is eternal. Angels are created. Jesus is worshiped. Angels are his worshipers. So chapter one tells us the deity of Jesus makes him superior to the angels. Next week in part two, I love it, chapter two tells us that the humanity of Jesus makes him better than the angels. What angel knows what it's like to get tired or sleepy or feel pain or bleed or be rejected by a friend? Chapter 2, verse 19, 18 is going to say of Jesus, in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He's better than the angels because he's God. He's better than the angels because he's a man. Jesus can help us in a way no angel ever will because he's been where we're at. He shared in our experience and has overcome the human dilemma. Let's stand and we'll worship. You can set your Bibles aside. I mean, after the first song, Kevin, if you wouldn't mind bringing the kids in to worship with us, we'll do one song just in responding with, with a little more quiet atmosphere. And, you know, so quickly we can be self-righteous when we read this and say, man, I've never worshiped an angel or I've never had an unhealthy view of the prophets. And, and Lord, we just pray tonight that you would scan our hearts and just see if there be any wicked way in us. See if there be any iniquity, Lord. We are so quick to be idol worshipers, God. As we'll see this week in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we, we, we worship pastors and men and we say, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos or I'm of Peter. And, and we worship these apostles sometimes in an unhealthy fashion, God. And we pray any men in our life or, or just radical men that God is using now, Lord. I have my favorite preachers and teachers. And Lord, forgive me wherever I've elevated these men to be some sort of God. Lord, forgive us wherever we've elevated a movement or a church or just anything to be better than it is, Lord. Or even, God, help us if we've elevated these things to be better than you are. Lord, if we've become worshipers of feelings and emotion and, and uh, just things that are, are in the church today that are, they take the stage and they become the focus and they become what is sought after, the experience, rather than the person. Lord, help us. Lord, wherever we have become angel worshipers or, or Lord, wherever we've even feared angels, Lord, may we see tonight that you have created them to be ministers and servants. Talking with Aaron and a few others this week, Lord, of just sensing spiritual things going on just around my circles, Lord, and, and just having fear. Lord, that you would take fear away, Lord, and that we would rest in you and, and not only your presence, God, but as, as Elijah's servant Gehazi, was afraid and he saw your angels and there was peace in his heart. Lord, may we have peace just knowing that you have sent these ministering flames of fire to help us, to help our kids, Lord. We pray that, Lord, our theology would get better about angels, Lord, and, and just even what you've got going on in the midst of around us, Lord. Not in an unhealthy way at all, God, but, but in a healthy way. Lord, that even tonight, right now, Lord, you would station your angels around this church and just, just push away any darkness as, as the angel did in the book of Daniel, fighting against the prince of Persia. 
Lord, that you would just clear out this place if there's any darkness, Lord, and that you would bring clarity of mind and right mind and peace. And Lord, wherever just there's just been a stronghold in lives and hearts or over minds, Lord, would you just, um, just chase away those strongholds? And, and Lord, if there's any demonic presence, Lord, just chase that away, God, by your power, by your might, by your servants, Lord. Let there be clarity. Let there be worship in this place like never before, Lord. We pray we would join tonight the cherubim and the seraphim who cry out day and night, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We cast down our idols tonight, God. And only your spirit can reveal to us what those are. Only your spirit can reveal to us those unhealthy, compromising areas. Lord, tonight that you would show us Jesus is better than your husband. He's the true and better groom. Jesus is better than your wife. He submitted when he had every right to claim privilege. Lord, that we would see that you are better than our hobbies. You would see, we would see you are better than our career. Lord, that as we lift up selfish ambition before you and a desire to see ourselves succeed and we have these great aspirations for prominence, popularity, position, wealth. Lord, that, that I would be elevated. Lord, may we be soberly warned right now that you are better by far. Most excellent. And as we worship, Lord, Call us out by name. Call us out by heart. Call us out by those things that we've been holding on to. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.